0: to say well i was up till about five o'clock this morning writing something a plan from all my plant breeding research and i was so buzzed so i i haven't well i've been up for a while but i am a little bit buzzed there's a lot going on i was away for two days on the road looking at plots and visiting a mill and i'm just exhausted i really need a break
1: you're exhausted on the basis of doing some some pretty cool stuff
0: there's so much There's so much going on. It's just uh, crazy. I mean, finally, I think the world's waking up, or at least Britain, well, I think the world is Britain's behind the curve, I think, uh, waking up to the idea that we need much more genetic diversity and biodiversity in the fields. Of course, what they want to do is just rewild everything into trees, but I want to rewild the wheat fields. That's what I think we need to do. So anyway, but it's, it's booming. Well, you won't like the fact that I'm supplying a distillery with a lot of grain. That's booming. Um, And they're building a new one. But that's really paying the bills, to be honest. But it's not just that. I'm selling, I'm relaunching all my historic flour range at the end of the month. There are some really dedicated home um, artists and bakers, but just consumers are just really eager to buy flour that they know is decent. And so I've got to get back into that.
1: I mean we can talk about other things but that's the main thing I wanted to talk to you about was just this uh, approach that you're taking to growing the week cuz yeah I think it's a fantastic story and um people need to hear about it mm. people would want well people want to hear about these kind of things I mean the thing is we're so we're so sort of starkly kind of faced with the problem you know everything breaking down and so yeah. on
0: yeah
1: but uh obviously you and I know there's 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 a solution in terms of, mm. you know, going back to where we came from, actually working with land and biodiversity yeah. and, and ecology and so on. But like, I think it's a time for people to start hearing the stories that begin to shed light on the fact that there is not only that has there always been another way, but but people are, are are starting to get another way happening again, not as a kind of, you know, reversal like we go back but but like we we go from exactly where we are now you know that's how i'm thinking about what you're doing
0: yeah that's that i think you got it i think you just summarized it perfectly i think it's it's not abandoning science but using it it's not abandoning what we've learned through the thousands of years of farming but drawing on the wisdom of the past i mean we do have to produce food we do need to feed people but we have to work within the confines of nature and find systems that are ecologically sustainable you can do you can do it all you can sequester carbon you can eliminate or massively minimize your fossil fuel use and produce grain but you have to start with the idea that you are working maybe altering and manipulating but effectively creating a genuine agro ecosystem and everyone goes on about agroecology and regenerative farming, and there's so many, I think, false terms out there. Um, So, yeah, that's what I'm certainly focusing on. I suppose you know my background already. I've known you for a long time, but, uh, you know, I worked in in London, or I did my MSc in London with Gordon Hillman and others like that. And Gordon was was amazing. You know, his knowledge of plants and gathering was... I brought this... Just oh, to, yeah. My favorite book. Yeah.
1: Foraging um, and Farming, which, which Gordon edited along with a couple of other guys.
0: With David. Yeah. And, and I was going to say David Harris was amazing fellow as well. David was really great at that broad kind of picture of the evolution of subsistence systems. The evolution of farming systems and and being a geographer and an ecologist I mean, G- gordon was you know, could identify some little fragment of anything found on an archaeological site and his botanical knowledge was just so exceptional so together they were they were the dynamic duo of of uh you know how farming systems developed and i think it's in that and that's why i was so interested is like how did we go from this mess of a situation where we were foraging um, in various intensities, I suppose, and eventually moving towards actually farming. But I think that's where we lost things. And obviously, haven't we? I'm sure we'll agree on that, that the system is now either or. Either you forage or either you farm. That's certainly what our modern fields are like. But that isn't what it was like in the past. So I've always been kind of into that concept of can we redesign, I mean, I'm not the only one thinking about it, I not claiming it's the only the only um, person who's had the thought. but how do we design farming systems that are far more like the first farming systems? I mean, that's what's been interested I've been interested in. So first you need to understand obviously what those ancient crops are, and then understand, I suppose, those ecological systems. That allow crops to continue to be grown, isn't it? And 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 then blend the two within the modern landscape, machinery, equipment, everything that we have. I mean, people set up forest gardens. You know, there've been so many different approaches to doing this. But um, so, I mean, I suppose I'm. I'm that's really what I've been working on. And I think recently we've made some big progress in how to do that with grain. Maybe, you know, it's easy to go grow carrots. It's easy to grow mixed polycultures of vegetables and things. But how do you grow grain on a large scale? If it takes it's if it takes a square meter to make a small loaf of bread. And the truth is, we have a society that's very dependent on carbs and on breads. You know, not we can't just eat roots and we can't. There isn't enough out there to forage. So how do you grow grain in the most ecologically possible way? And, you know, not just, you know, do you just, is modern rotational organic farming? Is that the answer? Well, I'm not sure it is. Um, so anyway, that's I, that's what I'm always trying to kind of work on. And I suppose, um, well that's where it starts for me. But what I've been able to do, Having talked about Gordon and David, is drawn that archaeological evidence that uh, there is so much of it now, as well as having studied ecology and genetics, you know, and I suppose even being a baker and all that has helped me. So it, you have to wear different hats to achieve things, inter- interdisciplinary approaches. But I think we now have the outlines of a system that I think. I'd like to think Gordon and David would be very happy that their Canadian archaeobotany students um, has, has, well, it's, it's, you know, use the academic knowledge that is essential you get from academic places, but still try to apply it practically at the farming level, but kind of staying true to my environmental views. That all sounds really vague and broad. I'm sorry, I haven't. I'm still, well, like I said, still waking up.
1: Yeah, no, I'm sure we can get into some of the detail though. So, what's what's the what's the actual um, thing that's System. happening in your fields?
0: Well, what we- I what I realize it's it's you know, necessity is the mother of invention. There's all those little aphorisms, and you know what basically happened to me was that. I was growing all these old grains and you know the the key to having any sustainability in a system to have a a resilient crop is obviously genetic diversity as we have in every wild population we have massive amounts of genetic diversity so modern wheat fields are obviously the antithesis of that they're monocultures they're pure line genetic things they're not resilient they're not adaptable you get a, a puff of bad weather or a little bit of dry weather they just keel over because they have shallow root systems because the whole focus of plant breeding has always been on narrowing the gene, the gene pool of the crop right so you identify the individual plants with those wonderfully superior characteristics you want whether that's high yield or any characteristic you want and then you make sure every plant in the field is identical because you know in an industrial production system that increases yield and 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 if you want to bring in disease resistance or another characteristics from something else you hybridize it and and again have a six seven eight year intensive selection process and you make it even more narrow i mean that final crop might have that extra characteristic you want but you're trying to combine all those wild characteristics into one uniform genotype that will be expressed in the phenotype in the field. So you've got a field of identical clones. And if all your conditions are perfect and you have tons of fossil fuels to use and you, want, and you have tons of fungicides and herbicides and fertilizer and every other chemical in the universe that you can dose onto the field and they don't cause any problems, well then yeah, you could have eight, 10, 12 tons. What's the limit? You know, and if you use biotech and GM, you could have a crop that produces immense amounts of grain. But, of course, we'll completely kill ourselves, destroy the planet, uh, We, you know, cause massive climate change. So the counter to that is to have massive genetic diversity. Oh, sorry. And, but in the end, what we can't control is the climate. And we're clearly in a period of massive climate change, aren't we? So our crops are dying like I've, you know, without a week, one week we're screaming because we haven't had rain for a while or or had too much rain. And then one week we're in a drought and the crops just can't adapt. They have shallow root systems and that's because they don't have genetic diversity like every wild population, whether it's a wild gathered plant or any wild population or animal, you need genetic diversity to adapt and evolve. And we've just completely eliminated that from our agricultural system. So the first step is to bring in lots of genetic diversity. So that's what I was doing initially. And, you know, I found all this ancient medieval fudge. Yeah. But that's
1: a good story. You can can tell that story.
0: Well, I don't know which story to begin with. But (laughs) let me come back to that. I just want to skip on. I know I'm talking too much.
1: You're not talking too much. I've got you on this podcast to talk.
0: Well, well, genetic diversity diversity is... (laughs) <laughs> genetic diversity is the key to all resilience in nature um with any population whether it's a population of bees or or uh, you know any anything so So I was really into that idea, and I found all this genetic diversity in this ancient thatch, which we can talk about. We're just, as I say, just just starting the DNA work, which would be really interesting to show about, to talk about that anyway. And then so I thought, okay, I'll collect all these old weeds from all over the world and all over our gene bank in Britain and everywhere. And I'll create, recreate one of these genetically diverse populations that's then very resilient, very, very adaptable, can take drought, can take rain, can take the cold. That's what we need in a period of climate change. And and um, I did that, it worked, produced good thatching straw, produced really tasty bread. No one's interested, or very few people are interested. And that was 20, 25 years ago. Perhaps I was a little little early there, but you could see what was coming down the pipeline. As a plant breeder, you got to think 10, 15, 20 years ahead. And so I think it was the right thing to do, and those crops worked pretty well. So I, I ended up on this little small holding here in Buckinghamshire near High Wycombe. And I could do what I want on these small fields, but you know, of course, I don't have any kit. I didn't have any money. I sold some flour to pay for things. Nobody was interested at Reading University, as you know, when I went to Reading and did my PhD research there. They just thought, "Oh, that's really fun, John, but you belong in the history department." Um, that's what he said. He said, "This hasn't got anything. This hasn't anything to do with science or agriculture or or feeding the world because the future is GM. Get with it, John." Right you know that's what i was told and so i kept growing the stuff here in fields to people who were interested there were
1: some people can I just stop you for a minute like, this is fascinating because they they've sort of stolen those words and because you know isn't isn't that right there in darwin's theory of evolution descent with modification it, yeah so genetic it, modification it's 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 not a matter of genetic modification being being some terrible thing it's a matter of people who 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 are thinking that they can do a better job than a millions of years or billions of years of evolution can all of those different circumstances all those little trials as it were which which test and and fold genetic information together to make combinations we could we couldn't even dream of um, and and B, like in this current context which i don't know what you're gonna get onto how just the biosphere now, the complexity of the conditions now, the environment now will modify and produce mm. something which, which actually g- gives the kind of resilience and, and, and complexity that you're talking about. So it's, it's, I just wanted to say that, like <laughs> genetic modification, who's genetic mo- modification?
0: You got it. I mean, th- that's, that's the absolute c- critical thing. The whole paradigm of plant breeding and agriculture is this hubris. You know, it's human, we can do better, so much better than nature. We can spot those combinations of genes that we need to produce crops that are infinitely superior than what natural um, evolution or natural selection and, and crop evolution has done, our ancestors did for 10,000 years. So, you know, in, in 25, we're so much better. And it's just, I don't believe it. It's, it's you know, they're focused on that individual and bringing those individual genes together to create a monoculture with all of them. So inevitably you're going to run into then, um, you know, you can use natural hybridization between two things that can sort of naturally mate. But if you're crossing in strawberry genes into a wheat or something like that, obviously I think you're you are transgressing a line that would never happen in nature and they managed to convince us or they try to convince the world that that all the biotech techniques that they're using are just natural but they're not just natural wheat doesn't cross-pollinate or extremely rarely so that whole thing is a joke but it's rooted in this incredible arrogance that i've been having this discussion with some pretty you know, uh, uh, well-known or, or significant plant breeders recently about about this and they just think they can do much better. And they aren't doing much better. They're doing much worse in the long run in terms of sustainability. But that whole paradigm in plant breeding needs to shift, I think, away from... See, it's all rooted in this idea of a harvest index ratio, as they call it. You know, the proportion of edible plant material to the overall biomass of the plant, you know, that that is collecting sunshine. And, and you know that we as humans can identify those superior genotypes and shift it where we have more grain and less leaf and less yeah. straw but,
1: but can i say that the, the thing that we notice because of the approach that, that we take to plants and, and that is that is one we're following the plants right through their life cycle so we want to know like is there an edible shoot Is there an edible leaf? Mm. Is the stem edible? Okay. And then we find out when we realize the stem is edible, like on something like hogweed or cow parsley, the stem's edible right at the beginning at the base of the plant, at the the first bit of stem. After a little while, the base of the stem gets tough, so we've moved up, and then we move up. And eventually, it's just a bit immediately below the flower, Mm. but we're following that edible part, and, and all of these stages, it will grow back. So we're, we're basically making this plant work harder,
0: hmm. but it's, well, I'm
1: just really interested in you saying about this edible mass index, because as far as we're concerned, the whole plant is edible at every stage and we make the, the, the plant vastly more productive because we cut it and it grows back, we cut it and it grows back, we cut it and it grows back. And at the moment, I'm actually eyeing up the grass around here, John, because I'm aware that the flowering stems before they mature are full of sugar and they're really tasty you know farm people country people have always pulled them out and chewed on them but i'm i'm I'm, a, I'm about to just start testing a few species and just putting them through a juicer and seeing what could we get out of those because we know they'll grow back you know so i'm just saying it's like this train of thought about animal mass index is only thinking about one product at, at a certain stage of growth, whereas if you think of a plant as being productive, yeah, on- no,
0: that's really interesting. Well, you have you ever used that term before, edible mass index, or did you just invent it? No,
1: oh, you just said that, didn't you?
0: No, I didn't say that. You've just invented a term. I said harvest index ratio. You said edible mass index, and that's a really interesting idea. The EMI, where I talk about the harvest index ratio, and it, you've just revealed something I'd never thought about before, which is that in Agriculture, as opposed to subsistence, um, you know, you're focused on commodity. Well, on, on crops. What are crops? Well, well, let's talk about grain for me. I mean, maybe I've got to work this through with vegetables, but um, but it probably applies the same. But so you know, grain crops, plant plant breeding. I suppose initially had a lot to do with well, it has it had a lot to do with grain, and it's it's a, you it's an annual. So wheat is an annual grass. You, it's a storable carbohydrate and protein reserve. So you let it mature. It turns into straw, which is clearly not edible unless you pass it through some animals. And then you have the storable grain. So that's where they talk about the harvest index ratio about you know, a very specific harvest that you can store. Whereas you've just said the edible mass index-
1: Well, that's hilarious
0: because- At various stages- I was
1: repeating the phrase that you used.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's your invention. That's cool. <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting concept. It's very different uh, from the harvest index because that's what guides plant breeding, but what guides what you're doing, perhaps that's what should be guiding vegetable breeding, for example, is not harvest index ratio because they're focusing on like how many courgettes does one plant produce? Or maybe that's not a good example, but you're, but certain, well, certain plants, obviously like you're not going to eat. Well, you're going to tell me that you can, but eat the top of a carrot. Um, yeah well, you know,
1: exactly, exactly that's exactly what i'm saying so for example uh the uh, broad bean or actually in, in reality it's father bean that people are growing around here in great big fields yeah but we know that you can take the uh the tops off of that if you get if you get it just before it flowers it is the most delicious vegetable. It's it, it really every other green vegetable. It's it tastes kind of like beans and peas. It's sweet, it's fresh, it's light, it's just gorgeous. And the thing that happens, John, as a result of doing that, is that the plant grows back with two stems instead of one. We've yet to get somebody to to cooperate and, and do research, but what we want to do is is do that to a corner of the field and then look at an identical area of, of the field and see which one produces the greater weight of fava beans. But I feel sure it must be the one that we took the tops off.
0: Wow. Have you got any historical references to people eating bean tops?
1: Well, That no. completely
0: transforms, like, medieval period. You know, there on many manners in the medieval period, uh, people were people who own the strips in the open field were actually ordered by manorial courts to grow a strip of beans to feed the poor. And, and, you know, the starving time, as you know, is the late, is the summer. Uh, maybe not for you because you know about a lot of foraging things, but, you know, your, your storable things from the year before the grains and stuff were all pretty much exhausted and you're waiting for the next harvest, but, I've never thought of and I've I've wondered about this role of beans within medieval farming systems, and we didn't have they didn't rotate with legumes as people do today. It was obviously a, a three-field rotation, but two cereals and a fallow. But sometimes they were ordered to grow beans, and but you're still waiting. But if it's a vegetable. So maybe it, it's a huge contribution. It could theoretically have been a big contribution to nutrition in um, nutri- I just never heard of anybody eating the top of a bean.
1: Well, and you where did, said, you, get, where kid? Kid? Where did you get the idea? I do
0: Where did you get that idea?
1: well, I have, to, I have to say that particular idea I got it from Jamie Oliver. Oh, really? <laughs> so it's okay. you know I think he's whether he said that publicly or in a in a, in a conversation we're having I can't remember. But that particular idea, but but like the, 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 the general idea of eating the stems of plants is, is that's just part of our um, approach to, to to the plants because we don 't see them in terms of a single output we're, we're saying, look if, if this thing is growing, then at, at every stage we're going to scrutinize it and see is this a stage where we're going to get something useful
0: and you' You're coming from that perspective, though, you see, but I, I've just shown my own cultural limitations and biases because I see a bean as an annual plant that is useful only once it produces little seeds, and yeah. t- in my case, dried ones, because I, I wasn't raised on eating any fava beans, but yeah. you're looking at it in from an edible mass index perspective, and it becomes very, very useful. Well, as opposed to the harvest index that, that, that plant breeders work on. I think that's
1: yeah, well, I mean, interesting. So there's, there's a couple of things I wanna just add in to make sure we've covered it. Like the, the first is that you're talking about this, this hungry gap or, or, or whatever it is. In actual fact, at this stage, when well, I say this stage, I mean the flowering stem stage before something flowers. Okay, so the plants that we're harvesting at the moment um, and I, hasten to add, not, not particularly for restaurants or other people, cause we've not quite got the hang of explaining this to people. So they understand it. So I'm talking about for my personal consumption and also what I'm teaching on courses at the moment. It's, it's all about the stems because those soft, sweet parts of the plant, they're just highly desirable. And yet the only plant that we actually harvest specifically for the stem, I say, we, I mean, as a culture is asparagus. And yet the, the carrot that you've described, the carrot has a very nice, edible, sweet, tender stem at this point, right now it does. Hogweed has stems that, that are just, you know, you could, you could be filling a barn with all the hogweed stems there are at the moment. They're sweet, tender, juicy, and delicious. Cow parsley's just finished, but, but that's massively productive in, um, in early May for, for these sweet stems. Um, so, there's a whole stage of growth that we're missing out on other than asparagus, which is actually high in sugar and probably other carbohydrates, but it's it's noticeably sweet. So while you're going through this hungry gap, you are surrounded by sugar growing in the hedgerows. Mm. You're also surrounded by sugar growing in, in the, uh, in the, um, fava bean fields and, and the carrot fields, if you were letting them reach that growth stage, So the other thing, the the other thing I just want to quickly get in is, is, is the fact that this, um, yeah, maybe edible mass index is the right thing. I'll have to think about that. But, but if you add up what you can get from one plant, if you harvest it all year round and you know, it's not everything can take it. Like there's a plant called Oxide Daisy, which if you cut that more than once when it's, when it's about to flower, it will just give up, but most plants will not give up they'll really just keep going and eventually you let them go and then they flower and set seed. So what you've done is make that tiny little bit of soil with that one plant growing in it. And that one plant work extremely hard without depleting the soil. You haven't had to plow it. You haven't had to do anything. And, and, and this, this changes to me, this changes my whole concept of the productivity of landscapes. If we just went to every little, little village green and picked all the dandelions and all the plantain and all the arrow little little herbs right i'm not talking about stems now but still that's a lot of biomass they grow back just like when you mow motor lawn it grows back it's just the same and you keep doing that and make it work very really hard all of a sudden across the country we have this massive pile of food that we've had to have no inputs into because we made that plant produce and produce and produce again so there's two things one, one is the, the thing that it grows back and the other that at every growth stage, it's got something edible. And and, and then if you double them up, you say, well, if we pick it at just the right time, each of those stages will be repeated two or three times. So we get the stem growing two or three times, the flower growing two or three times. The only thing you won't get is the seed growing two or three times.
0: Yeah. No, that's really interesting. It it just shows how focused uh, certainly plant breeding and agriculture has been on just one timing a one storable kind of uh, fruit that is produced or grain and how narrow that is Uh, you know I suppose sugars I suppose let's think of a plant like your bean plant I mean a stem what is a stem it's two things it's an architectural thing the plant produces to hold up the reproductive unit
1: yep isn't it
0: and the reproductive unit wants to wants to reproduce so it can keep going as a species. And it's a storage sink, isn't it? It's a storage sink of energy, just as you said, sugar, to fuel the successful creation of that seed. yeah, so but the thing is, many plants are so productive, as you've just said. There's enough energy produced in that plant that you can steal that temporary storage sink and yet the plant is so productive and there's still so much sunshine out there that it can it can do it again to, to a degree as you said some plants aren't as good about it so a wheat plant as you said grasses have are sweet because that's what it is you know the the, inter, the stem of the plant isn't just holding the ear of the inflorescence where there's going to be seed above the weeds in an evolutionary sense was was doing trying to capture sunshine But that stem is a temporary storage sink of the sugars, uh, which are going to eventually feed that stem. If you cut it early enough, the plant will just tiller and produce more stems and it'll compensate. It has to to be quite early, but you can steal all that sugar. I mean, that's what's going on, isn't it? You're just nicking the temporary storage sink uh, before. Well, before that becomes carbohydrate, before it becomes starch, you're stealing it as sugar.
1: Well, I like to think of it not as stealing, John. I just uh, I just like to think of this as a river that's yeah. flowing and I'm dipping my cup in because it carries on. Yeah.
0: Flowing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't mean in an anthropomorphic, yeah, stealing sense. But I'd the, the say nature is gifting it to you. We're all part of the expect, same.
1: But it's the same as any other kind of situation. And, and I'd like to know what you think about this. Um, that, that, That ordinarily, you're looking at grazing animals doing that and. And because it's a wild context, the grazing animals will move on, so eventually the grass will get to do its thing. It has to put up with growing back again. But but there's there's even a situation that's going on with that, which 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 I've only just cottoned onto. There's some fairly recent research about uh, root exudates uh, changing. So for for anyone listening doesn't know, like the the the, uh, the roots of plants, they they ooze out these substances called exudates. that that do two things, they either break down uh, compounds in the soil directly and then the plant reabsorbs the compounds that have been, they're kind of like, in that sense, they're working like digestive enzymes, but also the exudates feed bacteria and other microbes, who then, because they've been well fed by the plant, they're then able to do this uh, chemistry on stuff in the soil and again that gets fed back into the plant. Well, the, the, the thing I was going to say is that when, when grazing animals, there's some studies to show now that when, when grazing animals eat grass, the root exudate composition changes such that it, it supports a, a bigger population of bacteria now. So basically the, 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 the bacteria increases and then their output increases. And so the, 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 the grass is then getting more phosphate, more nitrate and, 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 and stuff like that. Per cubic inch of soil, as a direct result of it being, of having its above ground parts attacked by a grazing animal. So, you know, this, 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 the complexity of that system of something grazes, mm-hmm. it's so far from the idea of, you know, I mean, I don't even mean anything by it, but like the, 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 there, is a, there is a sense for some people that when we're foraging, we're kind of plundering, you know, and when you realize that that, act of cutting is actually something that the plant responds to in a way that's a very important part of its it's 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 its toolkit says okay i've been grazed now i need to change my root exudate you know it's all it's all designed to happen
0: oh yeah yeah i i I agree it's all part of the of the natural system that caused it to evolve it's evolved as a community with those interactions I think the root exudates is really interesting. I I I've been fascinated by that. I mean, I I was really interested in mycorrhiza. Now people are talking about mycorrhiza, but nobody was even talking about mycorrhiza 20 years ago. But now it is definitely the big thing. And I've been reading recently. There's been a lot of interesting research in China, and the figure for those exudates is something like 35 percent of the carbon fixed by a plant ends up as exudates. It's just pumping carbon into the soil in the form of sugar, as you say, to feed the bugs and the bugs digest everything around them. You know, people talk about the shortage of phosphorus on how we have only 50 harvests left or something like that because we're running out of phosphorus. Well, the soil is an infinite resource of phosphorus and, and potassium. It's just that it's locked up. The thing that releases it are soil bugs. So we don't we feed the bugs and we have an unlimited supply of, of soil nutrients to feed our, our crops and our plants. So yeah. and you know and and so all of these things are happening, but in a in a modern wheat field you 've only got one genotype of plant that you've eliminated all that wilderness and put in one plant with one genotype you know there's no genetic diversity there to have variations in all of these different things, all that diversity at every level from the bacteria and the mycorrhiza to to the plant itself it's just it's just one sterile population of of one genotype, utterly unsustainable. So what I've been trying to do is to, so you create diversity at every level, so the crops are massively genetically diverse, as diverse as I can get them, but we're starting a new program now to bring together, to redo this all with thousands of different varieties. I mean, I have used quite a few over the years, but I want to do a, a wheat field with I don't know, I want to start with 5,000 varieties. Why not? Have as much massive genetic diversity as possible. But that's only part of it. And that, so it's, it's what happens in the soil, as you say. That, so in, in the field, it's how do you create a wild situation um, where there's as much diversity as possible? I mean, you, do, you will be harvesting as an annual crop. But how do you build in as much diversity at every level from your bacteria to the soil fungi to to different species of edible or or just wild plants who are helping pollinators and helping other insects, parasitic insects who are attacking the aphids that will eat your wheat crop. But it all comes back to starting with a massively genetically diverse crop. And then nature is full of that diversity and, and that wheat field will be colonized by wild species and how do you manipulate and maintain an agro ecosystem that is the most beneficial for humans but also to nature and so because i do want to grow grain to create bread to feed people we need that with the people we have i think you know there's a lot of people in the world perhaps you don't need quite so many but we can feed them all we can all we can feed them all quite well and i i don't i'm i'm not so interested in livestock um I, i'm, I'm vegetarian but i'm not well now i am but um i i think that they may have a role to play but i so I'm, I'm jumping forward so basically in a nutshell the system i think you know how i grow my wheat i grow it every year in the same field i don't rotate my crops and i think that is the most um close to nature way of growing it. It's still clearly a wheat field but because I with clover, I spike the field with rare crop weeds um, it's and, and nothing comes off that field as in nature the only thing that um, well you could say nature there's a bit of grazing I don't mind putting a few sheep or maybe a roll for that on my fields but you don't need that. so I the only thing that comes off the field every year is the grain. so I'm harvesting some protein some nitrogen and some phosphorus and potassium but all there's a lot of nutrients in the straw and it all and the weeds and it all just stays on the ground as happens in nature and i just skim off a little bit to have enough storable grain and if you have genetic diversity in the wheat crop itself um and those older varieties are are adapted to those low nitrogen growing conditions I can get every year a ton of grain per acre um, without pushing the system. You know, I'm building nitrogen. If you want to test the soil, the organic matter is enormous, like in nature. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm building nitrogen, um, uh, all sorts of everything you want is in that field, full of diversity. And that's what I want to talk to you about earlier, was to say, you know, what edible plants are in such a system and can I spike the field or manipulate it in some way to encourage the prevalence of forageable um, plants within this very natural wheat field. But if I do it this way, I know, and, and that's what I've spent quite a few years trying to show and on my small holding here, that I, I, I can do it every year, year after year, and I get a ton of grain. Now that's, that's great. That works for me in this human economic system we've created that gives me enough profit to keep doing what I'm doing and to keep doing my research and to feed people. But, you know, an organic farm, uh, the traditional organic farming system right now, as you know, is all about crop rotation. Forget conventional farming, that's just a bankrupt system that's destroying everything. So I don't even want to go down that path. We need organic systems in the sense of no chemicals, but modern traditional organic farming, rotational farming is you grow and it's again rooted in this outdated notion of harvest index ratio about we need genotypes that can transform a lot of nitrogen into high yield for a commodity and i think organic share is the same plant breeding and industrial farming paradigm as any other system i mean i'm cl- clearly supportive of organic farming and no chemical farming but yeah. it, 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 the answer is not just rigid you know we need to we need to be able to flex that system so They grow three years of clover grass lay or something like that uh, to build nitrogen, as they say. So, yeah, the clover is building nitrogen and they plow it down. So they completely destroy the ecosystem, as it were, that is developing in the soil. And then they say feed the soil with dead plants. That's been the idea. And then it composts, it mineralizes, it releases nitrogen. Then they stick in one crop of wheat and they get, what, one point eight tons if you're lucky uh, many claim more but I think it's often less um, and you get 1.6 tons let's say 1.8 tons but and then they get that for one year and they suck up all that nitrogen um, in a in a monoculture using a modern variety where every plant is identical with no plants in between because they have interro tillage or you know the idea is you, you're constantly you know tilling that soil to get rid of the seed bank weeds are our enemy weeds are our enemy and we both know they're not we have and they have
1: this we have this scenario playing out we're surrounded by it there's, there's an organic farm right next to us and just and, this, and then
0: in the next year in the next year you do a second year of barley, feed barley or something to feed cows so you're producing grain once every five years 1.6 tons every five years if you're lucky Well, I get a ton every year, plus I'm creating a massive agro ecosystem that is as semi-natural as you can get to. So I'm producing, what, six tons every five-year rotation. They're producing 1.6 tons. I'm producing three three times the amount of grain on a field per square meter over a five-year period, um, while utterly supporting biodiversity pollinators Pumping the tons of carbon in the soil, sequestering massive amounts of carbon, as you said, through through exudates, which then feed the organisms, because these old crops have massive root systems. You know, all of that humus is lying on the surface. And and you know, with no fossil fuel use, because you're not going up and down the you're not tilling, you're not plowing down the lay. You're not doing any of those things. So it's just, it's, it's, I don't understand why anybody keeps doing those types of, well, I do understand why they keep doing those systems. But in an ecological sense, in a food production sense, in a biodiversity sense, in a carbon sequestering sense, in a reducing your fossil fuel sense, there are, there's a, there's a way of doing this that is so much more sensible and produces good quality grain on a scale, well, three times the amount of grain. But what it doesn't include, is livestock, As we all know that's what organic farming is all about. It's about growing cows. It's about, and that's where the money is, organic meat. So I think, you know, I suppose we're moving towards a world where ideally all, well, if we're gonna all eat meat that all the meats produced using rotational organic systems producing very high cost in an ecological sense, meat, um, And then I would like to see continuous restorative grain cropping, as I call this, to produce all of our grain. Then I suppose we do have a system that works jointly together, but trying to grow grain, basically modern organic systems do not produce grain and they're never going to feed the UK. Because if you need three years of lay, you're never going to feed the world uh, or the UK, sorry, we don't feed the world, um, but we could feed the UK. Uh, But if we did it organically, we'd have to cover the entire country in clover grass lay, which we can't do. So we have to move towards grain production systems that produce more grain, but that are also good in a a nature sense. And and it's available. It's entirely available. But the key, again, is that genetic diversity going back. It's always about that having the most genetically diverse populations of cereals. Like I say, 20 years ago, they laughed. Reading was laughing. Now they call and they say, oh, can we visit your field, John, which I just love. I feel that they, you know, I'm, my time has come. Uh, so I'm I'm very busy developing new populations and trying to push the system out to everyone. And we now, we're, we're thinking of putting in, well, we're, we're getting close to a thousand, well, we're thinking of putting in a thousand hectares of it. So if, if we can find a way of that crop having some potential as a foraging type situation, we're you know, there's potentially a lot of plants in there. Maybe, maybe I need to interplant my wheat with, with beans for, for harvesting for vegetables. I don't even have to worry about letting it ripen. I, I, I want to move towards, I, you know, all I need is a ton an acre to make this system work. And as I say, when I, cut, when I use my combine, I set the cutter bar at about three or four feet above ground level. So I just cut off the ears. Easy um all the bugs all the plants everything stays on the ground i don't scoop up any pheasants or anything and and uh it all stays in the field and then i just broadcast more grain onto it the next year as a natural ecosystem would do falls to the ground you can mow it then to mulch the ground and because there are not thistles there are weeds that come up which i don't want but then you get this flush of new growth and it's a it's a constant cycle of fresh plant material. So within that, with your knowledge, it'd be very interesting to see how that type of system, I I don't want to just grow grain if I can also grow lots of other edible foods. So maybe that's a a way forward for foraged foods is to combine, if we can manipulate it in a way that allows me to grow a ton of grain, then please help me develop uh, another element to it that with all those sugary stems that we can also have foraged foods you know you, i'm trying to I, it's all i'm being vague but there's a way of having agriculture that isn't just focused on high harvest index ratio plants that also includes edible mass index plants that's what we're developing a new type of farming with yeah. crops that well, include both
1: you know the thing is like i've i've been been working in this small corner of 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 thought with with not many other people in the room um, as you have like actually but 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 my little corner of the room has been what if we went back to the wild hundred percent you know, and then other people are going, oh well, you know agriculture is is this system that supplies it all for everybody, um, and yes, it's very destructive, but what if it becomes more more like the wild and and so I think I've gradually been kind of opening up to a perspective of thinking, well, it's probably somewhere in the middle between these two ideas, but really in the end, if we just drop, probably drop the term agriculture and drop the term wild and look at um, at, at the term complexity, that's where I think it's at. That the reason why domestication and and, Agriculture generally has been such a negative thing, is because you know that genetic modification thing really ought to be oughtn't to be called that. It ought to be called genetic simplification, because that's what you're doing. You're you're reducing it to those individual strains. Simplification. Yeah, and and that's that's what agriculture does. That's so destructive, is it says okay here you have this unbelievably complex ecosystem on this piece of land involving birds, insects, mammals, plants, fungi, bacteria and, and other classes of animals whose <clears throat> name I have not yet committed to memory, you know, um, th- th- all of this extraordinary diversity providing, as someone pointed out to me years ago, to point about ecosystems, they provide multiple benefits to multiple species. So, you know, you have and then you have this emergent property of the, of the ecosystem and the, and the, and the flourishing life and so on agriculture just reduces that to one species and kills everything else and eventually if we keep going that way it will kill us too because you know we too will be part of the ecological collapse that results but 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 when i stop sort of quibbling about the term agriculture or wild and, and just end up working with this this term complexity that's the thing like if if we are if we are facilitating a a plant and everything else community, to me, I could almost take my term wild back because I could say, well, what else is that but, but wild? You know, because because in, in a wild ecosystem, you have species that, that have more influence than others. They're called keystone species. So what if you on your fields, we, we say that's a wild field there, and there's John, the keystone species that does this stuff like a beaver does on the river. But you know the end result is more complex than 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 that meadow over there. Now it probably isn't yet, yeah. but if we keep well, working
0: on it, yeah, that's what. Er- but I think that's what early um, agro ecosystems were. I think that's what. Well, in my from what I have learned archaeologically and ecologically, that that is how those er- first agroecosystems were very diverse. They definitely got rid of species and encouraged annual grasses called cereals. But how did they do that? They certainly didn't till the land. They were broadcasting. And that mere fact increases allows other diversity to develop there so i think you're right no you're you're plowing a (laughs) plowing a good furrow there a non non non-till plowing an interesting furrow
1: yeah yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) there's so many analogies in our english language that are all about tilling the soil and destroying the soil well
1: that's Um, right there's there's a lot of there's a lot unfortunately we just we we take the metaphors from what actually goes on so we've got a lot of information technology metaphors as well people say you know oh, i've downloaded that now
0: or i suppose this whole rege- you know the, the term regenerative farming everyone's bouncing the term because they don't want to use the word organic because that's gone all into certification which can be ever so limiting and problematic i mean i'm clearly as i say supportive of organic but boy have i had some run-ins and uh it could be very narrow it can almost be a brand it shouldn't be it's a movement it's a concept But so now people are using regeneratives. So I've heard farmers say, oh, I'm a regenerative farmer. Yeah, I just spray a little bit of glyphosate first to kill up, you know, kill everything in the field. And then I I direct drill. That makes me a really eco regenerative farmer. That's not regenerative. That's not regenerating anything. That's maybe, you know, well, you're not plowing, so you're not using a bit of fossil fuel, but you're using more herbicides than you ever used in order to have a no till system. And now we've got black grass everywhere. Um, so my, my approach to black grass, you know, black grass is the COVID of modern cereal production because we've gone to no-till and min-till farming and non-inversion tillage. And, and now black grass is spread everywhere. I had a, um, someone grew some wheat for me recently, and out of seven tons of grain, there was 2.2 tons of wild black grass seed. It's just a plague in the field, and if you you can get rid of it by tillage, and it's also resistant to herbicides. So they're saying, "Oh, what do we do? What do we do?" I'm turning the black grass seed into gin. <laughs> <laughs> that, embrace your enemy. I mean, I want the gin, but but oh. it's a weed. So that but, but you wouldn't have that if you had a nice understory of clover, and you had annual cropping. Like you know, we create enemies. Farming creates enemy Enemy species and then uh, it just goes from worse to worse you create a rod for our own back the whole system is so utterly unsustainable whether it's organic or not so much of what is being done is just clearly can't continue
1: well i, I mean i think it's interesting about the the the, the uh the quantity of the by crop as it were because i mean immediately i start thinking that's a by crop wonder what, what else you could do with that black grass i wonder if we can hull. You know de-husk the seeds and 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 do stuff with that because that's where i think we should mention that's where you and i hooked up in the first place that's right because uh richard at um what's what's richard's company embers gate yeah i don't know i don't know how i got in touch with him but I, i was talking to him about harvesting wild grasses and and i said um what i could do with finding is some farmers that that end up having mm-hmm. some wild grass seed as a bycrop crop, or other seeds as a bycrop crop, and he put me on to you. And of course, you sent us sacks of uh, wild grass seeds, dock <laughs> seeds, right. and Sherlock seeds, and you even had some uh, some little peas from some vetches or something, didn't you? Because, oh, because yeah. you've, got your, um, you've got your, or at least you had a combine set up at that time to, to get all the other seeds that were in the field. Um, and you know we've been mm. making wild mustard ever since. I still haven't got through all of that charlock seed. Um,
0: and, <laughs> wow, that's amazing.
1: And, and so, so I was just going to say that that's that's in a way is one of the answers to your question about what what goes what could be growing alongside. I mean, surely you, do you still have charlock growing up and dock growing up or not? Yeah,
0: well, you know, but that's that's interesting. Um, my system is continuous cropping now, and and so there's no tillage. It's just you know a, a permanent bed of clover, and you either drill into the clover or broadcast into the clover, and so I'm not disturbing the soil. And so no many kidding. of our crop weeds, are, well, our crop weeds, so many of the of the our arable crop weeds are obviously arable. They're obviously disturbance plants, and I'm not sure the first crop weeds were. Disturbance-based kind of arable crops. I think they were probably perennial. So, so it's a perennial system. So, what are the perennial weeds? Well, there are some weeds that are perennial, but most have always been annuals. Most have been, you know, um, uh, adapted to disturb soil. And I'm not disturbing the soil. Maybe I need to harrow a little bit every year just to stimulate the reproduction of annual edible weeds. I wouldn't mind doing that because it also stimulates tillering and maybe adds a bit of oxygen to, so there may be advantages to harrowing but then you're burning fossil fuels doing that. So I don't know maybe that I, I in my field it's basically continuous cropping clover understory lots of wild flowers but they have to be perennials which excludes a lot of the rarest arable crop weeds but maybe I just do a a bit of strip you know a harrow a couple of strips up and down the field just to provoke the reproduction of edible annual wow. arable, I don't know. Maybe that's a cost that's that's worth, you know, a little bit of fossil fuel for a couple of rounds of harrowing would produce, you know, tons of edible wild annual wow. weed. So, there, and it may help pollinators. So I'm not sure, I'm, I'm moving in a direction and working with a few other scientists, um, looking at pollinators and and I'm working with Richard and a couple other people to say, how can we develop a system that produces grain, but produces maximum benefit for nature, pollinators, but with your input, that's where I got quite interested recently thinking, well, wait a minute, it's not just about the grain. It's all those sugary stems and all those lovely wild plants. So you could do it all. You could actually, and as you say, what you harvest doesn't ever damage nature. It's, it's a sustainable harvest that accentuates um, the, the diversity and, and the supportive capacity of an ecosystem to help bugs and everything else in nature. But we could do it all. We could, I believe. I believe we can grow grain, we can produce lots of edible other things that humans might want, plus make that system incredibly supportive to nature. And I believe there, then, we're getting closer to the type of early Neolithic systems that existed for a while before, in a sense, they got hijacked by, uh, probably by civilization, probably by by centralized authorities who liked the idea of storing grain and, and using it to pay for soldiers and creating armies. You know, this goes back to Scott and, you know, against the grain, that type of idea. How did early civilizations about well, it was on those storable grains with the high harvest index ratio whereas the key to a peaceful decentralized society is to have agriculture that's based on an edible mass index you know that's 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 how i see it uh, 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 so i want to create the most sustainable grain production systems and i want to feed humans i, I don't have a problem with humans i like humans um, and I like communities of humans but the system we have is just so um centralized and and structured just to store those things that it's obviously gonna gonna crash and as an archaeologist you know I spent years digging up crashed civilizations in Turkey and places and you know those destruction levels of of you know hundreds and hundreds of bodies of of societies that have collapsed and that's what we're in we're in a period of collapse and we have to rescue it you know
1: wow yeah that's how it It, feels yeah it's it's kind of pre-apocalyptic yeah could we could we actually could we
0: just and yet you know and it seems to me the only way to do that like you can scream about this stuff for years as you've done and we've all done and nothing bloody happens, right? But well, it doesn't happen fast enough, people are wake up and enlightened, but in a sense you have to work within the system. Well, everyone says you got to work within the, the market system. Well, the market system, y- you can scream all you want about climate change, but it, it, it's not just people keep doing what they're doing. They're trapped in a system where the people who, where the, the, the systems, the corporations who, you know, agriculture in the UK is utterly controlled by a handful of large corporations. And yeah. and and so how do you change that? Well, you have to create market alternatives that work. Well, I suppose that's what I've spent been trying to do for 25 years is I'm now in a position where the grain I'm growing using this system that I think is sustainable and these genetically diverse crops that are adapted to climate change can resist all this. They now have market value yeah. because only because of the collapse that's occurring and people want to actually buy a loaf of bread that really is not causing problems. But, you know, so there's a race going on. Well, all I know is that I'm booming. I'm, ex- I'm, you know, quadrupling my grain production every year. Everybody wants it because it has flavor um, and they believe, that, you know, people do want to help. People do, do want to, if they can, buy a loaf of bread that they know is contributing to the solution and not the problem when they know about it. They say, well, you know, it's going to be much more expensive. It's a middle class thing. That's not necessarily true. And I think there are ways of mitigating that. And I don't want to just create grain or, you know, the, the whiskey sells for this high price whiskey. I'd rather feed people food. But I also want to continue my work and I want to spread this. And it's in a sense subsidizing a movement that ultimately could be mostly about baking bread and giving grains to people to eat. I mean, I fully believe that. You know, 60% of our grains being fed to cows or to, to animals. You know, well, that's insane. You know, obviously, we're going to have to have far fewer animals in the country if we're going to have to be sustainable. We don't necessarily have to be entirely vegan or entirely vegetarian or whatever. I I I might choose that. That's a personal choice. But what we don't shouldn't do is is waste 60 percent of our grain on 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 animals they should cows should eat grass and as you said earlier grazing has its has its contribution to nature and to ecosystem just as we we're human grazers so there are so many things that we can do we can clearly have an agricultural system that is incredibly benevolent to nature and that sequesters carbon and reduces fossil fuel use Uh, but we have to take this juggernaut of a capitalist market system and obviously redirect it towards this. So if I need to do a little whiskey to do that, and someone's willing to pay ridiculous amounts of money for a bottle of whiskey, that is, I have to say, exceptionally tasty whiskey, then that's great. And then I can use those resources to help develop a system that we're talking about. So that that's my approach to all it. And it seems to be working now, because the the problems are so great, and people have woken up and want to help that shift is occurring. I just hope it happens fast enough that the collapse that we've provoked is, is you know, is going that we can recover. I mean, the earth can heal. Nature, as we all know, ecosystems can heal. But not if you completely destroy it and, it, you know, you're, you're destroying the underlying systems that allow it to heal itself. And that means just getting rid of genetic diversity. That is, again, the key. So in diversity, there is strength at every level, in communities, in 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 wheat fields, and in nature. So all we're doing is trying to, you know, harvest a little bit of that diversity and encourage it. That's got to be our goal as a species, isn't it? That's my kind of spiritual goal is I have an opportunity to increase genetic diversity. That's how I kind of view it at a spiritual level, and that's what I'm doing.
1: Well, I think I it's, talk too much as well. Sorry. No, no, John, it's fantastic, and as I said, that's uh, that's uh, <clears throat> precisely why we got you here, um, so you can mm-hmm. talk too much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like so, we can we can say uh, uh, about the diversity, and and then the linkages between the diversity equals complexity, and I think you know at every level that's what's happening, and I think I think it's really interesting. To think about people tinkering away you know as as you've done and as as i've done in 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 again <clears throat> i have this picture of small corners of the room you know like in a quite an isolated fashion because you're pursuing an idea and you're pursuing the idea and it's in its own right and in both cases you know you're working with with crop genetic diversity i'm looking at the diversity of food plants that are just there but the interesting thing is that the next thing that happens is that people show an interest like you're, like you're saying, and and that is and for, for you, you're, you're, you're talking about communities and people making bread and so on. And and that's it's just the most essential next step because it's not just plants and, and this kind of me- mechanism of people needing to eat in order to survive, you know, as soon as we start touching and handling these populations, and then they translate into food, this becomes something that, 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 that can be described as culture. And that's, that's what I'm excited about now, that, that, that from c- c- quite the other direction, you know, people's existential angst or, or, or emptiness, you know, is, is searching out something that gives them more meaning and, and more depth. And and just some kind of ethical thing that they think that you know when they spend money when they eat food, etc., that they're not contributing to the to the to the collapse. There, there might be a way of spending a few pounds as part of your food bill that is contributing to reweaving the fabric rather than tearing it down. You know? And so I think these things meet. You know, people like us tinkering around, and people going, "Well, are there any solutions? Can can we? Oh wow, look at this! You know, buy some of your flour. You know, buy some of our plants, or come on a foraging course, or something like that." So, you know, it's, it's like um, it's almost like call and response. You know, you, you, you're just sort of muttering away in this small corner. But sooner or later, somebody comes around with a microphone and wants to amplify what you're what you're muttering because because it, it's 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 what we need. And, you know, I, I, I don't think we can do anything else, even if we knew it is going to collapse and we're all going extinct. What else could we do but what we're doing now?
0: Well, we never give up the struggle. So but, you know, you know, I I just my little corner of the world is grain production. It's what I know a little bit about in many ways in the UK right now. It's uneconomic to grow grain if you have less than about a thousand acres. That's a hell of a lot of grain, you you know, combine harvesters are 750,000 pounds you can't hold one so you can you can have a little plot allotment and a little plot of land and and try to grow cereals growing carrots is, is easy but growing wheat on a half an acre of wheat if you want to try to you know do your own that's really hard and you know, i've done that i've sickled quarter acre plots and that takes forever and but that's what our ancestors did all by hand but that's why they went to mechanization and it's also horrible job to cut half an acre of wheat with a, well, with a scythe or a sickle, you know, this is all really challenging stuff. So I don't have a problem with a degree of mechanization. If it frees me, if I, if that can be done in a way that, you know, enhances everything that we've talked about, I'm not, I'm not against the concept of development of technologies in a sense, um, or even using science. But, um, So where is the solution going to come from? Is it going to come from people like you and me and and community groups growing quarter acre plots, 100 square meter plots, allotment levels of cereals? Because we are going to keep eating bread. Or is it going to come from trying to convert the thousand acre, 5,000 acre industrial farms, you know? they're the ones who are causing the massive damage clearly. But I, I want to develop systems that makes it easier for small scale communities to grow an acre of grain. And that's about, it is about technology and equipment. And I actually am working on this. I've set up something called the Heritage Grain Trust, which is a charity, not for profit. And we're gonna look at small scale equipment in the UK context, You know, battery powered, solar powered, uh, you know, electric bicycle level harvesting and things like that. So people could do one acre plots, and there's lots of little five, 10, two acre plots hanging around, like around Oxford, for example, and they're rented out for horse pasture or something because everyone thinks it's uneconomic because in an organic way, you can only harvest that crop once every, that field once every five years. Well, if you've got a 10 acre plot and you only harvest the wheat once every five five years, well, people just let it go to pasture and they have cows or they have horses. But if you could get 10 tons, off of that 10 acre plot every year, it becomes a really significant plot for local bakers, you know, for decentralizing the grain chain. Um, If you can, if you have the small scale equipment to do that, but now the big tractors can't even get through the gate. So, so we can, we can, we can solve our grain problems, our food problems by refocusing on these small scale, on small scale, human based farming, not with robotics, I think we can do using a very ecological way of growing grain that we've just been talking about. But how do you convert the 5,000-acre industrial system? Well, I can say that just the other day, the head um, economic minister of the Ukraine is one of the world's biggest grain exporters yeah. and, you know, massive. came to talk to us about <laughs> ecological grain production. So like, I've got to do that. I've got to work with those big people. And I am in the UK. I'm growing grain now on all the, some of the largest estates in the country from the Royal estates. I mean, no, you know. I'm growing a couple hundred acres at Sandringham, for example, but that's already organic because the Prince has been extremely supportive of all that, but I'm going with all the other estates as well. And they seem to be the ones that, well, they have the resources in a sense to make that commitment. Um, So you've got to work in every level you can to try to make that change happen. I think we can do it. I think, I think this is possible, but I do think it means the end of conventional grain production. And it means challenging the organic sector to say, let's divide um, the organic from animal production, don't try to do both, let's let's develop a new organic system for growing only grain, call it veganic, call it whatever you want to call it, but it's a system like I don't use any manure, I don't need manure, I don't need animals, I mean, they can have a role. The, uh, um, and, and, you know, everybody used to graze sheep in the spring on, on wheat fields if they come on too quick. But I, I don't need them. I don't really want them on my fields. Um, and uh, if other people have a system they can develop, that's great. So th- we can do this. I think we can do this if ever. And then with massive consumer power behind it. So we're launching a huge website hopefully in the next month which is talking about all of these things and um, and really going to try to push to take this all forward. A website is not going to solve the problems of the world. It's got to mean people in the end in this system, people choosing to buy a loaf of bread or I dare say a bottle of gin that is made in an ecological way that, you know, is contributing to helping the, heal the planet rather than destroy it. And you know a, a loaf of bread <clears throat> at the moment you buy in the supermarket, industrially made, is a bag of oil. You're just converting oil into into bread, sadly, yeah. it's very carbon positive. So we've got to try to change that. But I think we can do that. I think I think there's enough interest, and we have a lot of land and it's a good climate in the u k. to grow grain. but we need to um, yeah, radically transform it. i know i'm I'm just blabbering and going in circles here, but uh, i I've always liked your foraging approach, and you know I used to do quite a lot of foraging, but um I haven't so much recently but I'm going to start really trying to see what I can get out of these. We, I've got to get you up into our fields.
1: Yeah, I think we've got to talk about this because, the, you know, I mean, I, I, I do have a few thoughts just, just to share now. And the, 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 the first is probably that one about the, the plants moving through the seasons. And, and, and when you said that you have a regrowth stage um, in the autumn, you said that, didn't you, that, that it goes a mm. bit green in the autumn. Well, you know, there'd be, there'd be um, a chance to harvest lots of stuff then. And perhaps some of that is stuff that you need to, to, to more actively try and reintroduce. But I would be interested to see what's coming up in the autumn. There must be some plants there other than wheat and, and, and wild grasses. So that would be great. Um, because you've got that whole season there. And then you've got the same thing happening in the spring, there'll be stuff springing up, which is just like salads and, and, and herbs and possibly some greens. Um, but again, whether whether introduced or what's coming up now, to be some edible stems. But I, I do wonder whether it wouldn't be worth looking at what happens. Um, what just well, I'm going to do it with the with the wild grasses, as I said. But to see what what could happen with harvesting a little bit of your wheat halfway through ah. for those juicy, sweet stems, and then see what they did afterwards. They still produce a nice head of grain.
0: Well. He- you know, a wheat tillers in the spring. Wheat tillers in the spring, rye tillers in the autumn. But um, wheat is like any grass. If, if you cut it early enough, it just tillers and thickens up and produces more stems like the, lawn, the grass in your lawn. But if you harvest it after, let's say, end of May, and that varies with the type of wheat, but roughly speaking, late spring, it won't. It'll die. It'll, the wheat plant just dies because it's an annual
1: would you potentially increase your your yield if you if you did the first the, the, the first thing you said
0: yeah if you harvest if you you could mow a wheat field and that's why they put the sheep on if it came on too early in the spring historically in the medieval period if the, if it was a warm spring the wheat starts growing crazy it's going to be going to go too tall too thick and it's going to fall over and you're going to ruin your crops what do you do you put the sheep on to harvest that sugary stuff that you're talking about so oh, you could mow the field early in the spring um and collect that whole swathe of sugars and then theoretically all that would do was stimulate tillering and increase the yield assuming there's enough nutrients in the soil it'll actually even out the field it kills the weeds as well and it just it actually helps the field so theoretically there is a way i would say that uh you could harvest your your um I, I see a juice on the yeah, market like, like juice. And, yeah, yeah. and it may have it may have some wild weed in it. And that's all really cool. It's wild, wild heritage, grain, edible mass index juice. I'm sure you can come up with a very interesting name for that. I, I see where you're going here and um, and I'm sure we could we could find a way of doing that. And And it would not. It would increase, if anything. Um, the yield of the grain in the end without without you know stressing and and demand taking too much from that system it's just harvesting the sun's bounty um and for a short time and, and 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 not not knocking back diversity i don't think in any way i i've been thinking right now as we've been talking maybe we, we can't say it because other people will be oh, oh, Nick this as a marketing idea so maybe we need a private conversation about some products but i'm thinking about a flower with Seeds, wild seeds. Yeah. Um, there, there's room and, and we can make sure all you know the profits are used uh, to further these ideas. I'm starting this. We're really launching this research project in the fall. You know, you'll never get conventional funding for this, but that's OK. We don't need it. We'll do it on our own. But with Richard and a, and a scientist from Coventry University, Barbara, who's an expert on pollinators and Uh, We're going to really look at how this system um, supports um, pollinators and more diversity. So we're going to do botanical inventories of the field and then start looking at spiking the field with other plants. And you know what? I'm not even averse to if I need to grow, I don't know, marigolds or tulips in the field to help pollinators. And it fits and I can still get my ton of grain and it all adds to diversity. I don't only need wild plants. I don't have a problem with planting anything in that field that could sustain itself and help humans eat and contribute to that ecosystem, to help pollinators, to help with um, sequestering carbon that that add organic. matter. It all ends up as organic matter in the soil. So I want to experiment with lots of different approaches to rewilding our cereal fields, as it were. and yeah. uh so i'd love to have you on board to that and i need your ideas for that and your experience of the wild plants
1: well i think um i'm really up for that and um yeah i better get myself up and have a look well luckily
0: a- we have a really good um uh, landowner farmer up there in uh, i'm working at the brewery estate in west oxfordshire henry astor and he's he's really really supportive with all of this so i have the opportunity to um do do what i want um to make this happen so we're going to set up a big research center and all sorts of stuff so we'll definitely get you up there and uh sooner than later in fact you should come up for thinking we need to think about this in person we got to get you up later this summer or this summer forget the fall i can't wait that long
1: absolutely and we'll
0: see what's in the field i've I've got you know fields of vine corn and a spring real spelt. I always go on about fake spelt is what's on the shelves at the moment, but we have got real, genetically diverse spelt. So come up and we'll walk through the field, see what we can come up with. But I have a feeling we could have a very fun and enriching conversation.
1: Yeah, good. You know, maybe we'll record that one as well. And it could be a follow up to this, because I think everybody would be very interested to, uh, well, everyone that's like this conversation would like that conversation, put it that way. It, it, you
0: know, we're healing that ancient, ancient rift, aren't we? I just feel the strand going way back. You know, agriculture has become so divorced from nature, as you say, it's like monocultures of you know, one uniform genotype with no nature in it. That's the modern pull. And yet they argue that what we need is to intensify that more with robots and everything else. Farming shouldn't be about bloody robots, you know, and, but that's what we're moving for. aren't we? We're rewilding the countryside. So they want to take agricultural land out of production and grow trees and, and then have move all the, the grain production, for example, onto intensive farms in East Anglia run by robots. Well, you know, Robots don't send their children to the local schools and don't drink in the local pubs. You know, the whole system is like, that's, that's not, yeah, it'll, it'll sequester more carbon and stuff, but do that within a farming system. If we embrace all these ideas we're talking about, you don't need to just take out, you know, we need also to feed people. So we, we need to reconnect, don't we? The wild and the, and the cultivated need to become one again. And there was a time where I think we were much better at that, and that's what we're both trying to do: is to come to that same middle point, as we've been saying. It's, it's a well. We have to do it, Miles. We have to keep doing this. We have to find a way of incorporating the two.
1: Well, like I say, it's to me, it's just all about these threads and connections that are running through, and then, and then we can just maybe even let the terms go, like. Cause it, you know, like the the, the Aboriginal, I mean, the terms of agriculture or wild or um, foraging versus farming, like that book said, because, because, you know, the the more I find out about Indigenous cultures, the more, the more I realise that there's always at least one group of people describing what those um, supposedly hunter-gatherer cultures did in terms of farming because some of you know the, the very rarely were there actually passive foragers they always were doing something that impacted the, the yes. growth and life cycles of the plants the just question is is there someone that's willing to to include what's being done in that context under a under a banner of farming but it, the more i look the more i see that the people are um, making a good case for that that, that it just depends on yeah. how you define farming. I guess the thing for me is that, it, that, that, that I've kind of latched onto the ideas of you know, decontextualization, where you take plants out of context so that they can't actually form a, a really functional part of an ecosystem in this place you've taken them to. And then the genetic modification in in the negative sense that the the thing is now so far removed from its wild ancestry that it's depleted and and again can't actually stand on its own two feet and and interact with other plants, it has to be propped up by fertilizers or herbicides or whatever. So it's all in, in, in all of those things, what you're looking at is a severage of linkages. So a plant out of context no longer has the linkage with its own place and then it can't form them here and the genetically modified plant doesn't have the, 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 uh, the resilience to, to, to stand as a part of a, an ecosystem. But the other linkage that's broken is the chemical one and that's, that's the one whereby we imbibe plants, you know, we ingest plants rather um, and, and then imbibe the, the, the chemistry of those plants into our incredibly complex organisms. That's a very important thread which, which which we're seeing now in terms of the loss of human health and and, and so on, because you know, the wild diet gave us a link to, to to the whole of nature's pharmacy or nature's I don't know what you call it, you know, just a just an, yeah, just, a, just an incredible rich bar that we could go and draw various drafts from, you know, of every compound that's yeah. that's possible. You know. So that's the other linkage that we've lost, that those, those selective breeding exercises um, have bred the, the chemical complexity out of these plants and the chemical potency. So, you know, to me, the, the, we, we kind of, we reconcile it all when we're looking at a kind of farming, which, which fosters all of these linkages, John, you know. It, 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 it like your wheat is, is evolving in, in your fields, isn't it? To be the wheat that becomes native where you are it actually becomes a species in that ecosystem and it it actually is is kind of the 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 basis for an ecosystem all of a sudden we've got the linkages back you know and i bet you it's more nutritionally diverse and, and potent as well as a
0: result i suppose i suppose it's like thinking you know really because my fields are not dense like a modern monoculture field where you know you could you could Spread a tablecloth and have dinner on a modern wheat field because it's just so uniform and thick and dense. mine's broken up all over that canopy is so broken, so it is like a forest yeah the wheat plant is the tree um and in my case, they're five foot tall and one the next one's three foot tall, and all that light gets down to the lower levels and the little open patches within the forest you know the the mosaic of communities that occur in a healthy Forests—it's not just a monoculture of trees—and um, that's really the the analogy. So a wheat field, theoretically, well, obviously not theoretically—it doesn't have to be a monoculture. It can be it can be the the key carbon sequestering species within an agro ecosystem, just like trees are in nature. But it's the patches in between that you and I are. We also need to exploit not just the product of the trees. Yeah. So there's we need to do a flower together, Miles. Yeah. We need to do a special flower yeah. that it embraces all these ideas. That it's from a field like this that we we can design and that 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 brings us together. Whether that's seeds or something else that pushes this idea.
1: Well, there are plenty of those seeds, aren't there? There's plenty of those wild species that happen.
0: Yeah, you. Don't mention them. Don't mention them right now, so that no, that's not true. We can't censor this, <laughs> but because I know someone will immediately take it and run off, and it'll become some
1: corporate thing. I don't think they're going to want to do the groundwork, John. But but I know. Ah, making. that's true.
0: Well, there think- are a few people. Some people have realized that this whole sector is booming, and there's you know there's there's tons and tons of money out there. There's billions of money. Of, of pounds that there's a there's not a shortage of money, but there's a shortage of ideas. And the people will there's money starting to flow into this because they see it as profit. What pisses me off is that you know massive piles of capital wait until the the situation is so horrible that they can then make profit on solving the problem. Well, they should be putting their capital uh, forward. To make a change before we have the total collapse, but that's what's happening. All the money shifting into low carbon, blah blah blah. But um, maybe too well. Hopefully, it's not too late. But but you know that's when they start to be interested. If they can make money on it, then then they'll help support what you're doing. I'm I'm trying to, to dance with that situation right now and to draw in some funding so that I can do things better. But you know. It, yeah. Anyway, humans it's
1: are. It's the main capital in this situation. Is 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 people that have uh, just been tinkering away. <laughs> that is the main capital. Uh, and I could, if you see what I mean, like, there's there's mm. there's there's not been uh, money's not been part of this equation, other than just to just to keep it going. You know, like if 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 money can come in now and, and help some of these ideas develop a bit more quickly, I'm sure you could do with a, a gang of people and more land and, and, and whatever to make these ideas develop more quickly. But the, yeah, but the interesting is. thing is that the, the, the what's there to be uh, invested in, it's it's a different starting point, isn't it? Because there are people all over the place who have just been working away quietly um, with money it's not, anything to do with it but yeah well
0: you know you can't take a 100 million with you we all end up in the same spot and, and so don't you want to feel good that you've used that money appropriately to help improve the world yeah yeah so come on billionaires through. we
1: are receiving applicants we'll we'll uh, we that's right money. yeah okay all right, John. Well, I think, I think I'm going to wrap it up now, and, and it's not because um, any other reason, but we we failed to make our podcast shorter because most people don't have the stamina to listen to the three-hour conversations. <laughs> <I've been doing.
0: laughs> yeah, I understand. So um, it's been good to talk to you again, Miles, and um, you're always welcome up here. And um, you, uh, well, let's let's arrange a day. I mean, the ears are of the leader are popping out at the end of June now. Now on the farm, M. M it's the first year we've implemented this system and I'm not growing grain on this is hey I know the field I want to get you to we took a field last fall a local a local guy had a three acre field of weeds and wildflowers he used to just walk his dog on his wildflowers and I think he actually spread wildflowers down at some point lots of lots of things just we said look can I grow wheat in this but without tillage I said yeah so we just literally broadcast wheat grain onto his wildflower field and we mowed it. And he spread a little bit of white clover. You should see this field. It's a wheat field full of wildflowers. And, and it's doing both things. And it's just north of Oxford. And it just, no tillage, nothing. And we're gonna move it into this continuous system. But the system at Brewer, you know, we're under sowing with clover, we're getting that system going. And I'm more or less, bit, well, at the moment, abandoning my fields here because I can't control the access to grazing sadly um so because i did i made such a rich clover base that now they want it for the animals where i wanted it for my cereals but anyway so we could go see that field and you could look at what wildflowers have survived and then at brewer and it's what we've talked about so there is much to see yes we'll get you up here we'll find a day
1: let's do it John.
0: yeah
1: thank you Bye.